Welcome to the Antioch Sheffield podcast. We are so glad that you can join us for today's message, which is brought to you by Pastor Todd Roberts. For more information about Antioch Sheffield, head to our website at antiochsheffield.org.uk. Good morning, church. He is risen. Well, happy Easter. So glad to be able to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus today with you. And uh, uh, we're going to have fun today. And today I want to talk to you about why the resurrection matters. Now, for some of you, this is, you're very familiar with why the resurrection matters. You've staked your life on it. For others of you, you've never really thought about it before. But since today is the high point of the Christian calendar, a day of rejoicing and celebration, I thought it would be good to revisit why we're rejoicing and celebrating today the resurrection of Jesus. Now, how many of you like the film The Sound of Music? Show of hands. All right, decent number of you. How many of you are like, can't stand Sound of Music? Any? A few? Okay, I see one hand back there. We will pray for you after the service. Um, I mean, what's not to like, right? I mean, you've got, you've got a, all those memorable songs by Rodgers and Hammerstein. You've got this great love story. You've got Julie Andrews' amazing voice. It's like a family favorite. At least it was in our house. And several years ago, uh, Lauren and I were on holiday with my parents and my brother and sister-in-law in Austria, and, which was an amazing time. And when we got to the city of Salzburg, where The Sound of Music is set, that my parents decided that we as a family would be doing the Sound of Music tour. Now this was, you know, uh, I, I guess a tour where you got on a, on a coach and you toured around to the various filming locations. And uh, to be honest with you, this was not something I was particularly keen on, but my parents were very keen. And so since they had bought us our tickets and told us we were going, we, we you know, decided to go along. And um, it's about what you would expect. You know, you, you get on the coach, and the, the tour director, he's, he loves the sound of music. And, and pretty quickly, he's got all of us singing, all of us 50 strangers singing Do, Re, Mi together as we drive down the road to the various filming locations. And it was every bit as awkward as you can imagine and just to help you understand how awkward that is, I'm going to have us all sing that together this morning. You ready? Do, a deer, a female. Oh, you guys have got it. <laughs> Me away to far. So. <laughs> Tea, drink with ram and bread. And that will bring us back to dough. Okay, now I have to be honest. I wasn't really planning on doing that. I was just going to say just kidding, but you guys just went for it. Give yourself a big round of applause. That was amazing. I'm not sure I actually know all the lyrics. I just kind of fumbled through it. Yeah, so, <laughs> so we're, we're riding along, and we're singing Do Re Mi, and yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's something. Um, but actually... The most interesting part of the tour to me was when we got to the church where the wedding scene was filmed. Remember the wedding scene where Captain Von Trapp marries Fräulein Maria? It's this beautiful scene for copyright reasons. We can't watch it because it is, it is this amazing scene. But um, <clears throat> everybody loves that scene. It's like the dream wedding, right? 
But it's actually held, it wasn't filmed on a soundstage, it was filmed there in a church in Salzburg. It's actually a, a, a basilica called the St. Michael of Monsi. All right, I think we have a photo here. It's this beautiful church from the outside. You get some exterior shots at the end of the wedding scene where the bells are ringing. And it's just as beautiful inside as it was on the day that it was filmed. And uh, we've got, you know, just a stunning church that you can walk into. But, but we got to, you know, we had several minutes to explore the site, and so we were walking around and, and looking at various things in the church, but, but when I got up to the front of the church, I noticed something, and several other people noticed something, and, and we quickly asked the tour guide about it, because up on the altar, in the midst of all the statues and candles and all the normal things that you would expect to see at the front of a Catholic church, there was this what can only be described as a skeleton. Now, you can't really see it here, and I've decided not to show the zoomed-in view, but there is a bejeweled skeleton sitting there in front of just peering out at you as you worship. It's got, like, literally, it has, it's something right out of Pirates of the Caribbean. I mean, you've got, like, you've got pearl-encrusted forearms and, like, rings on its fingers. And, and again, it, it, is, it is literally one of the creepiest things I have ever seen in a church. And because we have little eyes in here this morning, I didn't want to show the close-up, but you can look it up online. I mean, it's, it's got, like, sapphires in its eye sockets, so it kind of looks like the Terminator, you know? It, <laughs> it is literally, can you imagine just kind of going to church and having this thing sort of staring out at you? I mean, I'm not sure... And the reason I bring this up is because if something ever happens to me, what I'd like to ask that you do is, no, I'm kidding. Uh, (laughs) And there's not just one skeleton, there's actually five skeletons. Everybody else is kind of lying on their side, like, hey, you know, like they're just kind of reclining there next to this guy. And this big skeleton, this is uh, the the one in the middle that I'm talking about here that the arrow is pointing to. This is um, uh, Abbot Conrad II who was a, who was a, uh, he was the, the, the uh, rector, I guess, of the uh, monastery at the time. And basically, in 1145, some, about 900 years ago, some uh, noblemen tried to take the land that the monastery was on, and, and uh, Abbot Conrad defended the monastery and gave his life in doing so. And people were so impressed by that, they thought this is a martyr, and they wanted to preserve his remains and keep in mind the enormous sacrifice that Abbot Conrad had made for this church. And I'm sure that was very impressive, but for the people who were filming Sound of Music, you know, the whole skeleton vibe wasn't exactly what they were going for during the wedding scene, right? So they couldn't move these things. These are like entombed up there on the stage. So what they did is they put a, a statue in front of it. And then the, the, the other skeletons, they put potted plants around it. But if you look closely during the wedding scene, you can actually see them, you know, as they're getting up to the altar there, the skeletons kind of peering out behind you. It's really, it's really kind of a creepy, weird thing that you don't notice until somebody points it out to you. But I was kind of stunned by this and just thought, wow, like, what an interesting way of decorating the church. Now, I don't want to, I'm not trying to knock uh, the, the Catholic uh, you know, Catholicism, because they have a high view of relics, and that's what these are. Catholics believe that relics are there, you know, at, to, to remind us of the great saints, the great men of God and women of God, the holy men who have come before us, and 
They believe that these are a, a, a way of, you know, kind of conduits of God's power, that some of God's power in his presence still rests in their remains. You remember the story of, of uh, is, it, is it Elisha who dies, and then, and then somebody, somebody else dies, and they throw the, the, the body in, and he falls on Elisha's bones, and he comes to life again? Whatever you think of that, that's kind of, the Catholics have a very high view of relics, and that's why those things are in the church. But as I was thinking about Easter, and as I was reflecting on that experience, what I realized is that I am so glad that the object of our faith is not a holy man who died, but a Savior who is alive. You won't find the bones of Jesus in some tomb in Israel because he is risen. And that means that Jesus is so much more than a holy man who did great things for God. Jesus is more than a great teacher who proclaimed or who revolutionized the world with his teachings. He's more than just a great prophet who proclaimed the words of God. He's more than a famous martyr who died a courageous death. What separates Jesus from every other person, including uh, Abbot Conrad up there, is that death wasn't the end of Jesus' story. What sets Jesus apart, and the reason that Christianity exists today, and the reason that we're celebrating today is that he rose again. He is alive. And this is a, a historical fact. It's an event that actually happened. The resurrection of Jesus is a reality, and it's the foundation of our faith. And that's our first point this morning, is that the resurrection matters because the resurrection is the foundation of our faith. Without the resurrection, we wouldn't be here this morning. There would be no Christianity. And this is what the Apostle Paul, a man who, who gave his life, who was martyred for his belief in the resurrected Jesus, this is what he had to say. He wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless. I love that. That says it how it is. Your faith is useless if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead. Because without it, you know, Christianity collapses like a house of cards. Without it, Jesus would have just been another Jewish revolutionary who was quickly forgotten by history. Just another one of thousands upon thousands of people that the Romans uh, uh, crucified. Without the resurrection, none of what Jesus said or did would have mattered. And we certainly wouldn't be here today worshiping him. And of course, critics of Christianity know this, and so they've made various attempts over the centuries to, to dismiss or explain away the resurrection. You know, some people believe that the resurrection was just a myth, like, you know, King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. Uh, some people try to, you know, myth, uh, try to dismiss it another way. Like I was talking to one person who was saying he believed that the Bible, when he describes Jesus' resurrection, is that it was just describing Jesus entering into the afterlife just like the rest of us. Muslims believe, a lot of Muslims believe, that Jesus didn't die on the cross at all, but, but that at the last moment, somehow, he switched places with some unfortunate victim. And somebody that, a Jesus lookalike, uh, stood in for him on the cross. Some people believe that Jesus didn't die at all, that he, that he passed out there on the cross, and then in the cool of the tomb, he recovered and managed to escape. Some people believe that the disciples stole the body and, and, and concocted this story about him being raised from the dead. There have been endless attempts to try to explain away the resurrection of Jesus, but the Bible is emphatic. Jesus physically rose from the dead. 
And the Apostle Paul, like he, he put it this way. This is the foundation of our faith. He wrote this. He said, I pass on to you what was most important and has also been passed on to me. And then what he says here, a lot of people think this was a creed that the early church would recite to one another. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. This would be the equivalent of doing the he is risen, he is risen indeed, that the early church would use. But Paul is saying, this is the most important thing. This is the foundation of our faith. Without this, there is no Christianity. He's saying this is primary importance. But he doesn't just appeal to tradition. He appeals to eyewitnesses. And he goes on right after this to, to list out the, the eyewitnesses who saw Jesus alive after his death on the cross. He writes, he was seen by Peter and then by the 12. And after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Now, why is he saying that? Well, he's saying, fact check me, everybody. If you don't believe, you remember, Paul is writing this around 60 AD, within 20 years of Jesus's death, and 20 or 30 years of Jesus's death and resurrection. And some of the people who had seen Jesus alive, they're still around. And he's saying, listen, if you don't believe me, Go ask them. They'll tell you. They saw him. He was alive. He is alive after he died. Then he carries on, and he says, then he was seen by James, and this is probably my favorite of all the, the eyewitnesses, because this isn't, this isn't just any old James. This is James, the brother of Jesus. Now, I always ask this question. What would it take for you, for those of you who have brothers, for you to believe that your brother is your Lord? I mean, I've got a brother, and he's a great guy, but it would take an awful lot for me to believe that my brother is my Lord. I think it would take what James experienced, seeing your brother brutally murdered by the Romans and then seeing him alive again for you to believe that your brother is your Lord. So James saw him, and then he says, and later by the apostles, that's interesting because he already mentioned the 12, then he mentions all the apostles. So apparently there were more than just 12 apostles, but there's the 12, you know, and then there's, I guess, everybody else, all the other apostles. And last of all, as though I'd been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. Paul's referring to his revelation, his vision of Jesus on the road to Damascus, where he had an open vision, got knocked off his horse, and he became a Jesus follower. Now, you might dismiss that as subjective, like, you know, can we really count a, a vision as as tangible evidence of the risen Christ? Well, listen, something happened to turn Paul from Christianity's greatest opponent into Christianity's greatest advocate. That's like somebody in ISIS suddenly saying, hey, you know what? I was wrong about that whole ISIS thing. I think I'm going to follow Jesus now. That's the kind of radical shift he undertook. Something happened. Paul was convinced and gave his life for the belief that Jesus is alive. So, it wasn't just Paul that was transformed, by the way. I mean, nothing else would explain how this ragtag group of Jesus' followers, about 120 after he died, and the, you know, when he was crucified, there were about 120 of them, how this ragtag group of terrified followers became fearless world changers just a few weeks later. Now, you got to remember, when we talk about Easter, we, all of us are familiar with it. We know the end of the story. We know that he rose from the dead. 
And so it's kind of hard to get into the, mind, the, the mindset that these guys had, but, but I like it. Somebody said it this way. On Easter Sunday, nobody expected no body. Nobody expected no body to be in the tomb. They were fully expecting, when those women went to the tomb, they were fully expecting Jesus to be right where they left him on Friday before the Sabbath began. That's where they stuck him. They were coming back to anoint his body, and they weren't expecting no body to be there. And by the way, the fact that women were the first witnesses, the first people to see the resurrected Jesus was unheard of in antiquity because in Greco-Roman culture, a woman's testimony was not admissible in court. In Jewish culture, it took the testimony of two women to equate that of one man. Now, that's offensive for us, but that's the way the culture was. And so my point is that if you were trying to concoct a story about Jesus rising from the dead, it would, it would, and you had women as the key witnesses of the main event, it would destroy the credibility of your story. The only reason that all four gospel writers record women as being the first person that Jesus to encounter the risen Christ is because that's what happened. And even though they knew this, this wasn't going to go down well for all their early readers, they just said, well, this is, this is what happened. Mary encountered Jesus and came back with this incredible story that he's alive. And the disciples, they weren't expecting that. And remember, these disciples, they didn't exactly cover themselves with glory on Good Friday when Jesus was betrayed and, and sentenced to death. I mean, remember, when they all, when, when the, the, uh, the, the mob came to arrest Jesus on that Thursday night after the, after the Last Supper and Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, the mob shows up, and what happens? All the disciples, after maybe a little, Peter tries to fight a little bit, but then they all run away. They flee. And then when Jesus is being tried, Peter denies him three times. The only one that we're told was brave enough to actually be there when Jesus was hanging on the cross was John. Everybody else just totally abandoned Jesus as he was there suffering. And then after Jesus died, all the disciples, they went into hiding. They were terrified because they, they were like, you know, if they killed Jesus, then surely they're going to come after his followers as well. These guys were scared. They just wanted to preserve their lives. They weren't world changers. And yet, just a few weeks later, we see them out on the very streets where Jesus had just drugged the cross on his way to, to Golgotha. He, they, the, the same place, the same people that had just killed their Lord, now they're out saying, hey, we've seen him, and he's alive, and we don't care what you do to us, he is alive, and nobody's going to shut us up. Something had happened which had transformed their lives, and all of them went on to devote their lives to proclaiming this message, and all of them would give their lives for it. So think about that. Why would these guys die to keep a lie alive? Or I've heard it said this way, why would the disciples risk their lives for a dead man whose death disproved everything he asked them to believe when he was alive? His death would have just evaporated everything that he said. Everything, his death would have disproved everything that he had asked them to believe. So why would they risk their lives for that? It doesn't make any sense. 
You know, people die for all kinds of false causes, but no one dies for what they know is a lie because liars make poor martyrs. So there's only one explanation for the transformation of the disciples and that they had seen their Lord brutally murdered and then they had seen him alive and well. Without the resurrection, we wouldn't be here today. Without the resurrection, there would be no Christianity. Christianity would have died with Jesus without the resurrection. It's the foundation of our faith. But that's not the only reason that the resurrection matters. It also matters because the resurrection validated everything Jesus claimed about himself. It validated all that he taught. It validated all that he claimed to be. After all, you know, if, if G, if, it, like I like to say, if, if someone predicts their own death and resurrection and pulls it off, I think I'm going to go with whatever they have to say, right? <laughs> what he, when he rose from the dead, it validated everything that he claimed to be. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus said, I am the, the light of the world. He said, I am the bread of life. He said, I'm the true vine. He said, I'm the good shepherd. He said, I'm going to give my life as a ransom for many. He promised to be with us always. He invited all who are weary and heavy laden to come to him and find rest for their souls. He said he loved the world so much that he would lay down his life for all of us. Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed to be able to forgive our sins. He proclaimed to be the only way to God. And the resurrection backed him up and proved that it's true. But the final thing I want to point out today is the resurrection matters because we can experience Jesus as an everyday reality. In other words, because Jesus is alive, he's not just sitting on a cloud in the, in, the, in the heavens, just kind of passively observing what's going on, just kind of observing what you're doing with your life. No, the fact that Jesus is alive means that he is actively involved in our life. He's part of the everyday reality of our life. And the reason for that is because after Jesus rose from the dead, he then ascended to heaven, and then he sent the Holy Spirit. That's what Pentecost is all about. And what the Holy Spirit does is it makes Jesus, instead of just being one person in one place at one time, Jesus is now accessible to all people in all places at all times. We all have access to the risen Jesus today. He's not, this isn't some distant thing that happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus is alive and he knows you, and he cares about you, and he loves you, and he's better than you think. He wants you to walk with him. He wants you to experience the eternal life that he offers you, because eternal life isn't just something that happens when you die. Eternal life begins the moment that you say yes to him, you surrender to him, and, and you're born again. That's eternal life. So just to make this practical today, you know, I was thinking this morning that this is the first normal Easter we've had in three years. Last time we gathered like this was 2019. 2020, we gathered online. 2021, we were here, but we were wearing masks and we were uh, 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 having to stay six, two meters away from everybody and we could only have the rule of six. And don't you guys just miss that? Let's just go back to that. No, I'm kidding. Uh, but we're gathered here, and I, and I just realized the last few years, they have been hard. For many of us, 
We've never experienced anything like it. And a lot of us are struggling. And so the fact that Jesus is alive, why the resurrection matters for you today is that you might be struggling today and Jesus wants to come and meet you in that place. You might be feeling darkness like you've never felt it before, but Jesus wants to come and be light in your darkness. Some of you are feeling so alone and so isolated. Jesus wants you to know that he is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He wants you to experience his presence. He wants you to know that he's with you. Some of you are experiencing crippling anxiety. And Jesus wants you to experience his peace today. I mean, after all, he is the Prince of Peace. And some of you feel lost and confused. You know, you're, you're just trying to figure out and make sense of all that's happening in the world right now and all that's happening in your own life. Jesus wants you to know that he is the good shepherd. You know, some of you feel cut off from God. Some of you feel like you know, you've never had any sort of relationship or connection with God, or maybe just recently you just kind of feel like, I, I don't know where God's presence is. Jesus wants you to know that he is the good shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one, and he's coming to rescue you. Some of you are grieving the loss of loved ones today. Jesus wants to comfort you. He wants you to know genuinely the power of his presence and his comfort. Some of you are hurting physically or emotionally today. Jesus wants to bring healing to you. Some of you are just full of despair today, and Jesus wants to bring you hope. Some of you are suffering from torment and oppression and addiction from things you can't seem to get out of. Jesus wants to deliver you. Some of you, you know, you're full of regret over the things in your past. Jesus wants you to know his forgiveness and give you a clean start and a new heart. And some of you today, you're realizing, you know, there's a vacuum, there's an emptiness in my heart that nothing seems to fill. I've tried, I've tried everything that the world has to offer and nothing is filling my heart. Jesus wants you to know him as his savior and the one who satisfies your soul. These are not just nice platitudes to make you feel better. These are the promises of Jesus. And because he's alive today, every single one of them are true. Every single one of them are pointed to in the word of God. And every single one of them can be a reality for you today if you'll open your heart up to it. We're not here just celebrating something that happened 2,000 years ago. We're celebrating the fact that Jesus is alive today. These, all these things are things that I've experienced Jesus to be. All these things are people that countless Christians over the centuries have experienced him to be, and you can experience him that way as well. So as we close in a time of worship, I want us to celebrate this reality today. You know, church is often seen as this place where we've got to be somber and serious, where we can't, we can't joke around or laugh or play. But actually, you know, sometimes that's appropriate, but actually I think church should be a place of celebration and joy and laughter and shouting and playing. That's the kind of God that we serve. So we're going to conclude today by partying a little bit. Can we do that together? We're going to actually celebrate that Jesus is alive. So let's stand. Thank you for listening today. To listen to more messages like this one, head to our website at antiochsheffield.org.uk forward slash podcast. We are looking forward to seeing you soon.